So um, I was thinking, if you guys, have you all watched the movie Braveheart? Okay, so you can tell some of the ages. This is like a 20-year-old movie, so I understand that. Here's a little recap. There's this, the main character, his name is William Wallace. He's in Scotland. And the whole idea is this. He's fighting for, he's leading the, the kind of the people in a battle for independence against um, England. And so here's William Wallace, and he's doing this whole thing, and he's just battling this thing, and he's, he's getting up every single day, and he's fighting. He's getting up every single day. He's going to the task of putting his life at, in, at risk, putting himself in danger for the sake of Scotland, for the sake of freedom. And so at one point, in the middle of this movie, he has his, kind of his best friend, his closest you know, comrade-in-arms, who says, why are you doing this? It's a great question. Why are you doing this? Why are you fighting? Why every day do you keep getting up and keep trying? Why do you keep getting up and keep going back, putting your life at risk? Why do you keep doing this? Why are you doing this? And William Wallace says, well, I, I'm doing it for, for freedom, for Scotland. And the guy, he's his, you know, he's his good friend. So he looks at him and says, no, you're not. You're doing it for Murrin. Now, who Murrin is, is it's his wife who was murdered by the English at the beginning of the movie. And his best friend looks at him and says, you're not doing this for Scotland. You're, not doing, you're doing this for Murrin because you think she sees you. You know, when you think at that moment, you could be one of those, if it's the really noble guy, you'd say, no, no, listen, please, it's not. It's, it's actually for, it's for Scotland. It's, it's for freedom. But William Wallace you know, you're doing it for Murrin because you think she sees you. His response was, no, I know she sees me. There's this element in that that's just like, he knows why he's doing what he's doing. And I wonder about this. Someone, someone, so often, you know, right, we get up every single day and you go and do what you need to do. You go to school, you go to work, you don't go to work. <laughs> you do the task at hand or you don't. And so often we don't know why, what are we doing it for? Why are you doing this? Who are you fighting for? Who are you living for? There's this uh, man, his name is Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik. And back in the 60s, he wrote this book called The Loneliness of the, the Man of Faith, The Loneliness, The Lonely Man of Faith. And in it, he talked about Adam in the garden, right? And he talks about two different Adams. He says, at, at one picture you get of Adam in the garden is the guy who lives for accomplishment. He lives for achievement. He's the person, the, per the human being, who lives to accomplish stuff, li lives to like, change the world, lives to make a difference, lives to make an impact on the world around him. And he, he says, David Brooks says, um, this is like the, the resume Adam. Adam 1 is the one who builds his resume. He lives to build his resume. But Rabbi Joseph also points out, he says, there's Adam 2. And Adam, too, is the human being, the person who lives for something interior, something hidden, something can't be measured. Not necessarily the accomplishment or the degree or the next achievement, but to become a person of character, to become a person who's honest, to become a person who's faithful, whose spouse can trust in them, whose kids can rely on them. Basically, the living for the eulogy. There's two different ways you can live, right? You can live for your resume. You can live like, okay, what we're gonna do is we're gonna build the resume. I'm gonna do all these things. If I accomplish more, if I get more degrees, then I've padded my resume. Or you can live for the eulogy, which is what kind of person do I wanna be when I die? You know, and I imagine if I ask people, like, which one do you wanna live for? You'd be like, well, I know the right answer because we're in church. <laughs> <laughs> but the question could be not which one, because we know it's the Adam too, right? The kind of person that you would be at your death, the kind of person that you are, not your accomplishments, not your achievements, not collecting a bunch of degrees or collecting a bunch of success, but to have a successful life. And yet we can ask ourselves, so <laughs> tomorrow morning when we get up and we go do what we need to do tomorrow, who are you living for? 
Is it Adam 1? Is it Adam 2? Is it I'm, I'm living for freedom, I'm living for Scotland, I'm living for Murrin. I'm living for God. You know, it's funny, in the first reading, it's from the book of Job, and if you know anything about the book of Job, it's, it's this, it's an inc- picture of a inc- man of incredible suffering, incredible pain. And Job starts out the story, right? He's got everything. He's a successful man. He's Adam 1 to the, to, you know, to the extreme. He's got a great wife. He's got a bunch of kids who all love him, by the way. It's like, oh, that'd be nice, you know? I mean, he's got, he's got all these crops. He's got, I mean, it goes through, the Bible talks about all the, you know, the cattle he has and the sheep, and not to mention the goats, you know? It's just like, he's Adam 1, but he's also Adam 2. This man, he's righteous. Actually, in fact, God has a talk with the devil in the beginning of the book of Job. Seriously, check it out. It's really interesting. Um, and God's like, look at Job. He's totally Adam too. He said, look at Job. He's righteous. He's noble. He is great. He's living for me. But what happens is this. In the course of the next couple chapters, first, his stuff gets taken away. His success gets taken away. His crops get destroyed. His animals get stolen. But still, he's a good Adam too guy. Still faithful, still virtuous. But then his, all of his kids get killed. Still, he's still, he's an Adam, Adam 2 guy. He's still okay. Then he, he loses his, his, his strength. In fact, he gets so sick that his scripture says that he's sitting on a pile of manure, basically sitting on a compost heap, and he's got these boils that have erupted all over his body, and all he can do is a scratch at these wounds with a broken piece of pottery. And his three friends come to him, and then this fourth guy comes, and they're all like, you know, Job, what'd you do wrong? What'd you do wrong? And he's like, no, I'm good at him too. I'm patient. I'm virtuous. I'm and finally, Job just has enough of this, all this stuff. He has enough of his stuff getting taken away. He has enough of his, you know, this sorrow of his children being killed. He has enough of this physical pain. And he finally cries out, cries out to God and is like, okay, seriously, what's going on? It would have been better if I just had died. And imagine some people in this church, you've had those days. Maybe you've had those weeks or months or years. It, just, it could have been better if I just never was born. And he goes on and on about this. God, what are you doing? He messed the whole thing up. And what we heard today is chapter 38. It's after 37 chapters of this, of this pain and then Job saying to God, like, what's wrong with you? Why didn't you just kill me when I had the chance? And it says, and then the Lord addressed Job, and he said. And what we got in the scripture today is God's answer to Job is kind of funny because for the next three or so chapters, he says, basically, who are you? Back today, he says, so uh, tell me, who shut the doors of the sea and, uh, when it burst forth from the womb? Who made the clouds? Uh, you know, who separated the, the land and the water? But the answer, God, I did. Um, but he's saying to Job, it's not, it's not God trying to be snarky about it, like, oh, Job, you think you have it bad? Well, I'm God. That's not the point. What's happening is this. God is speaking to Job and saying, Job, your whole life, you claimed to be living for me. But you were living for you. How do I know this? Because the moment I took it all away is the moment you're like, well, what's going on? What's wrong? I, shouldn't, I should have what I want. You know, no, God, it's all about you. Well, then if it's all about me, then I can take away your stuff and it's still all about me, right? But Job had been claiming to be living for God, but in fact, at the end of the day, he's just like, in a certain sense, I mean, he's a good guy, just like the rest of us. He's living for him. And the kind of thing is that question keeps coming back. Who, when it comes to getting up every day, when it comes to getting through your day, when it comes to going to bed, who are you living for? 
Is it for myself, for someone else, for a great purpose, for a small one? Who am I living for? Like, why do I do what I do? And how do I do it? I'm just thinking about this, especially, you know, on Father's Day. This is a good question. Just, I'm just thinking about, thinking about the, uh, here's God who reminds Job who he is. Job, let's listen. Listen, I'm the one who made everything. I'm, Job, I'm the one you can count on Job. I'm the one. He reminds Job of who he is. And I was thinking about this. There's actually a term in Hebrew for reminder or remembrance. And it's the term zakar. If you know anything about Hebrew, you know this, it, um, that zakar doesn't just mean reminder. It's actually the word for man. To be a man is to be a zakar. To be a reminder, to be a remembrance. I was thinking about, okay, so God reminds Job, he reminds Job, God is certain kind of, tells Job to man up, essentially, reminds him who he is. He zakars this man Job, he zakars the zakar. He reminds the reminder. I was thinking about what is it to be that zakar? What is it to be a man? So here's the guys, guys, men. Those of you who know you're a man, I mean, like, rather than, you know, I'm not a boy anymore, I'm not an adolescent, I'm a man now. Those of you who know you're a man, when did you know you were a man? You ever wonder that? Like, at what point in your life did you think, like, okay, I'm a man now? Was it, like, when you got your license? Some guys is like that sometimes. It's like, nope, I got my, you know, I, when I enlisted, that's when I knew I was a man. When I went off on my own, I knew I was a man. Then at that point, I knew I was a man. When I got my first job that helped someone, I knew I was a man. What is it, when, when was it in your life that you knew, I'm a Zakar, I am now, I'm not a boy anymore, I'm now a man. It's when you got married, it's when you had your first child. When did you know, I'm no longer a boy, I am now Zakar, I'm now a reminder, I'm a remembrance, I'm a man now. You know, because I think, that this isn't probably a, a shock to anybody here, I imagine that we all know that there's probably, it's not an exaggeration to say that there's what you might call a crisis of manhood in our, in our culture. A crisis of manhood, which means this, it means that men, we don't know what it is to be a man. And again, this is not a shock, probably all of you will be like, I can tell you something about what it's like to be a man. Like, a lot of us, we don't know what it's like to be a Zakar, we don't like what it is to be a man. And so, what Dr. Leonard Sachs writes about this, about how boys become men. He says, a lot of times the world gives us two options of what it is to be a man. One is the slacker dude. And so the slacker dude, you all know the slacker dude. The slacker dude is the one who's just kind of like, whatever. It's going to hang out. I don't really do a whole lot. I say, to, do you know that the average 21-year-old male in the United States, the average 21-year-old man in the United States, sorry, male in the United States, at 21 years of age, he's, all, he's played 10,000 hours worth of video games. That's the slacker dude. That's, I've got all this strength, what do I do with it? I just kind of let it go. The other option Leonard Sachs talks about, he says, the other option is you don't want to be a slacker dude, the option is you're a brute. You're a bully. You know, you, you have a lot of strength and you use it to push people around. You throw your weight around. And we all know, the, we all know both of these characters, right? Caricatures. We all know that, men, this was my option. Okay, I'm either the slacker dude, I'm the sensitive one, I'm the Don Juan, I'm, the, I'm taking all this energy, I'm just kind of letting it go. Or, listen, I pound my chest, I drive a truck, I can fix things, and I'm going to get my way whether we like it or not. No, all those things, those can be decently good. Fixing things is fine. Paying people to fix things is better. <laughs> but that sense of being able to say, like, at what point, are these my only options? You know, what is it to be a man? 
I would say this, to be a man is to be a father. To be a man is to be a father. Because, because fathering is the only thing that men can do that women can't do. So there. <laughs> to be a, being a father is the only thing that men can do that women can't do. And again, this is, can be all different kinds of fatherhood. In many ways, we're going to talk about this in a second. Jesus is a father, although he never had children. You can be a father without having, without having biological children. Paul, who wrote the second reading today, he was a father to so many. He didn't have any children of his own, but he was a father. We call Father Daniel father. He doesn't have any kids of his own. The reality, why? Why? Because a father uses their strength. A father uses their strength to be a reminder, to serve, to initiate. In fact, that zakar, that term zakar, doesn't just mean to be a passive reminder. It actually means to be an active reminder. To be, to be a zakar actually means to be initiator, to initiate the remembrance. To be a zakar means to take the first step, to make the first move. And now, if this is, this is the crazy thing, men, if your deepest identity, to be a man, is to be a father, to, take, to use your strength at the service of others, to be a zakar, to be a reminder, to take the first move, to initiate. What do you think our number one temptation is in our lives when we're called to be dads? Someone has once said that since men's deepest identity is to be the initiator, to move out of themselves, to take the first step, our biggest temptation is passivity. And you know, if men are built to Zakar to move first, to, to be the initiator, that means that wives or women are, are first meant to receive. To first receive his movement and then to respond with strength and with grace. So if man is meant to be the initiator of the Zakar, to move, take that first step, and woman is meant to receive that and then with grace give it back, what do you think that a woman's main temptation is? To take control. Now, I may have made you mad, but you know I'm telling you the truth. <laughs> because that's it, right? In how many relationships, how many men, how many times in the course of a day, when you come home from work, or whatever it is you're coming home from, and your wife says, okay, here's what we need to do. You're like, just great, just go ahead and do it. Just great, just go ahead and do it. Great, just go ahead and do it. If you can do it, because you know this, because men, you know this, she can do it better. Because honestly, right? It's like, you're like thinking they're sitting there like, well, actually, if you just did it, that would be great because you already know how you like it and you know how it's supposed to get done because you've been thinking about this all day. Because here's the crazy thing. Women's brains never stop. But you know this thing about men's brains is remarkable. This is actually a true story about men's brains is they did this neurological study on the difference between men's brains and women's brains. And they examined, they measured the, a man's like, brain wavelengths kind of thing with him at rest, just kind of sitting there and just like, you know, just sitting there doing nothing. And what his brain was doing while he was sitting there doing nothing, they had, he had enough mental energy to basically keep him alive. The brain, while all it was doing was regulating his body temperature and keeping his organs functioning. And so, wives and girlfriends, when you ask your husband or, or boyfriend or whatever, like, what you, when he's sitting there, what are you thinking about? And he looks to you and says, nothing. He's telling you the truth. He's not trying to hide something. This is actually the case. And so, he's, he's not using half of his brain. No, when God made women, he made her a second, right? So he, got a, he did it better. And, so women's brains are always working. They're always working. And so you're sitting there looking, you know, staring off into the space, and man says, what are you thinking about? You're like, oh, don't even get me started. What am I not thinking about? 
And so what happens is he comes home and he's like, listen, you already know what you want. You know how you like it. Just go ahead and take control. She's like, well, I don't know if you're going to make that first move. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take control. And what happens at first, it's great because he's like, I'll just have a beer. And she's like, well, I'll just get it done like I like. And then what happens ultimately is they resent each other. Why didn't she ever let me do anything? She never wants my opinion. She never allows me. And, he's, and she's thinking, how come he never just, I just want him to make a move. Like try. And this is this, this is great thing. But you're, men, you're as a car. To be a father, to be a reminder, to take that first step. And that reality of like, okay, who are you living for then? Because I'm not waiting for my wife to tell me, okay, listen, honey, here's who you're going to live for. Or my kids to say, hey, dad, here's how I want you to live. Like, man, you're a reminder, you're a car. Who are you reminding? And what are you reminding them of? I understand this is so hard. It can be really difficult. But it's, it's worth making an effort, right? I mean, I know that's why, in so many ways, I'm so grateful that the Lord called me to be a spiritual father than, rather than a physical father, because even when I'm with my nieces and nephews, like, I am such a, you know they have a thing called helicopter parents? You know helicopter parents, right? Helicopter parents, they, they won't let their children out of sight. Like, we have met UMD. We have parents who will drive from the Twin Cities to take care of their 22-year-old because they had a little conflict with their roommates. I mean, that's a helicopter parenting. But I found out there's this new kind of parenting, and they call it Zamboni parenting. What Zamboni parenting is, helicopter parenting is, I'm always here, I'm always here, I'm always here, kind of Zamboni parenting, you know what a Zamboni does, right? When the ice gets too rough, it's a little too uncomfortable, Zamboni goes out and just makes everything nice and smooth. Listen, no, 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 no troubles, no troubles, no problems here, no problems, no waves. I'm going to take all your pain away. What we have is, right, isn't that a temptation, parents? To be Zamboni parents. Like, if my, my child's intention, if my child's in pain, like, I'm just going to take that all away. And yet, and yet, God is our model, and he doesn't do that. In the gospel today, they're in the ship, right? They're in the boat. Jesus is with them. God is present. Helicopter parent. He's there. And what happens? They say, God, you know, Jesus, Lord, we're, we're dying. We're perishing. And what does he do? He says, quiet, be still. He calms the waves. He saves their lives. Takes the pain away. Awesome. Beautiful. But did you notice this? All Roughly, roughly all those 12 guys who were in the boat with Jesus at that time, they were saved from that one storm. Question, do you know the rest of the story? Were, were they all saved from the rest of the storms of their lives? Did, did, was God, there's a car father, was he a Zamboni parent who took away all the rough edges? No, absolutely not. Every, almost every man in that boat was martyred killed for that God. What does that mean? That means these men, that means these men knew how they could trust the God who was present even if he didn't act. And that's a crazy thing when it comes to fathers. I keep reading again and again and again. Like, how do you father? I don't know. What do you say? I don't know. What do you do? I don't know. But the thing that keeps coming back again and again is this, is dads, you might not know what to do. You might not know what to say, but your presence has power. Your presence has power, and your absence has power, too. Because if you're not in my presence, well, you're not living for me. You're living for something else. Living for someone else. I might not know what to do, but you know how to be. And your being there is a car. Your being there is the answer. Your being there is the answer. Because Jesus himself, 
was not a slacker dude. I mean, even though he lived at home until he was 30, he was not a slacker dude. And he was not a bully. He used his strength to do what? He used his strength to serve. Emmanuel, to God dwelling with us. God's presence is his power. And men and women too, of course. Your presence is your power. And this is the last thing. This is so true. That let's go back to Job. Job, now, again, remember this. Job is not just kind of like bummed out a little bit. Job isn't disappointed because he didn't get a pony for his birthday. Job is, Job is crushed because everyone he loves, except for his wife, is dead. Because all of his strength is gone. His health is over. And then God speaks to Job. And for, as I said before, three to four chapters, God goes on like, okay, so, let me quiz you. Were you there when I created the sun? No. Were you there when I made the moon? No. Were you there? I mean, it goes on to this whole. And at the end, I remember reading this as a high schooler, like, okay, this is the problem of evil. Here's Job who asks God, like, God, give me an answer. Why do bad things happen to good people? And God talks about this. And he says, you know, we're, you're going you're to keep arguing with me? Okay, fine. At the end of those chapters, I was like, well, that's a terrible argument. Like, that's not even an answer. God's basically saying, you're going to complain against me? Well, do you know as much as I do? Nope. <laughs> and I thought, that's awful. But Job didn't think that was awful. Here's what Job says in chapter 42. Job says, Job, when God gets done, Job says, I have dealt with things that I don't understand. And there's things too wonderful, me, wonderful for me which I cannot know. But then he says this. This is crazy. He said, I, have, I had heard of you by word of mouth. People told me all about you. But now my eye has seen you. I've been in your presence now. Therefore, I disown what I've said and I repent. You know, God's answer is his presence. His answer isn't taking away the pain. His answer isn't always having some kind of response like, why did this happen, God? Well, it happened because of this. His answer is his presence. And his presence is with us right here. His presence we encounter at every Mass. So that's the crazy thing is, you say, why am I living the last seven days? Why did I live for in the last seven days? Well, I lived for me. I lived for my spouse. I lived for my kids. Great, awesome. Those are decent things. You're a good person. Live for yourself, whatever. But then you realize it's not enough. I need to live for him, like St. Paul says. We've come to this conclusion. We no longer live for ourselves. We live for him who died for us and who lives with us. His presence. Here's my invitation. You know, you're going to keep coming to Mass, and you're going to keep reading, and keep praying, and you might not get an answer to every one of your questions, and every one of your, the rough places on your hockey rink might not get smoothed out, and actually you can promise, God promises, they're not going to all get smoothed out. But he's not a Zamboni parent. He's kind of more a little bit like a helicopter parent. Doesn't always bail us out. But he's always in the boat with us. And that might not be enough for you. But if it's not, I just say wait in the boat. Because if it's not enough, I think you haven't really met the real God. And if it is enough for you, then I'd say then, then you know who to live for. And you know who to love and you know why you're going to get up tomorrow morning and do the things you need to do.